if you live by yourself, you're single, and you work out of your home and you order groceries and they get delivered to you, then you may not experience too many relational problems. You might be a fairly unified person experiencing a lot of unity. There is a comedian that once said, it's just like magic. When you live by yourself, all of your annoying habits are gone. <laughs> now, we all could probably identify with that. There's not one thing that annoys me about myself. I think I'm actually a pretty nice person, fun to live with. Now, my wife and my children have, and I know for a fact, an entirely different answer to that. And you experience that. There's nobody here that doesn't experience a breach in a relationship, discord in a relationship, disunity in a relationship, and there's a lot of us that have experienced that in a church. Now, I recently received a phone call, and I'm going I'm to give you a little drips and drabs into the life of a pastor. It's not as glamorous as I think some of you think it is. Because I recently got a phone call from somebody in our church who told me, and I'm quoting, why she could no longer sit under my preaching and ministry. Now that actually resulted in a letter by the same title. And I thought, wow, she's remarkably consistent, and that's a good thing. But it was startling, this phone call, since she was actually, she's a friend of mine. I love her. I mean, she comes, she's been coming to this church for a long time. And whenever she would, I would spend time with her, and sometimes I even hung out after the service with her, sitting in the front of the church and, and just talking. So I get this, this phone call, and she says this to me, and I asked her if we could meet. Can we get together? Let's discuss what it is that you have a problem about me over, and, and let's bring somebody, another lady that you're comfortable with, and we'll, the three of us will get together so that you don't feel intimidated, because I know sometimes having the pastor meeting with you can feel for some people intimidating and i get that so let's bring another lady that you choose you choose her and she did she chose a lady and i said great let's set a date and let's get together because i really want to work through this i really value you being in our church well she calls me two days later and says i don't want to meet i'm going to write everything down in a letter and i'll send it to you and i said okay well just send the letter to me then she was offended, now this is her letter, she's offended that I do not preach from the King James Bible. Now I preach from the English Standard Version. I don't even understand the these and the thous. I actually took a King James Bible on a mission trip by accident, and I had the worst time with the Lord and devotions of all my life. I just couldn't understand it. I can't get my mind around that language. So I don't preach from that. preach from the ESV, which actually is translated from the same document that the King James is. It's just updated into a modern language. I think it's very solid, very good. But she's, a she's offended because I don't do that. And I made a comment in a sermon that I'm not a big fan of the Schofield theology. I used to have a Schofield Bible, and I'm not a big fan of the way that they systematize in that book, the theology, particularly in the dispensations of the church. And her other accusation against me was that she believes that I don't think saints are saved. Now, of course, I believe a saint is saved. 
And God holds that believer in his persevering grace. And it's something that I think the two of us, she and I, could have easily discussed, but she would not meet with me to discuss it. Now that's frustrating. I know what it's like to disagree with the pastor. Believe me, I totally understand that. And there are times where I'm going to say things, listen, or not say something that you wish I, w- wish I would have said in the text. And you can walk out of here feeling like, what, what is wrong with him? I get that because I've done that. But how do you respond? And listen, let's bring it off of me because more importantly, how do we respond to one another when we hurt each other? when we offend each other, when we don't love each other or live with each other the way that we're expecting the other people to do or the other person to do, how do we respond to that? And the way that we respond, does it bring glory to God? Now listen, unity, I think, is among the most important commodities that a church can possess. But I think it's probably its most fragile. Now, you heard that, right? Because this is setting the stage for this message. Unity, I think, is among the most important commodities that a church could possess, but I think it's probably its most fragile. Well, we've got nearly 600 people in a church called Cornerstone, and conflict is guaranteed. And helping people resolve it, listen, it's among the most prevalent things that I do as a pastor behind preaching. Preaching's number one. If you ever ask me, well, what's number two and three? Probably working with the board and the staff are number two, and then resolving conflict between people in our church is number three. It's all over. And our ghost sighting, this is our series, Seeing the Holy Spirit in Action, our ghost sighting today, as we actually end this series today, reveals that the Holy Spirit brings his people together. He unifies them, and listen, he helps them maintain unity. But listen, every church that is centered on Christ, that's true of. So why do so many churches split? Why are there so many fights inside of a church well listen it's because every single believer has a responsibility to maintain that unity and that's what we're going to learn today here we go three parts i'm going to give you we're in ephesians chapter four Uh, maybe i don't know did you bring your bible i hope you did if you didn't perhaps you're getting ready for the hurricane that might be coming up the east coast you know put it waterproof package i don't know but you should be bringing your bibles to church either your phone or your your bible mark it up let's take notes I think a well-marked-up Bible marks up your life. It will help you grow in Christ. I'm going to give you three parts to this passage, chapter 4, 1 through 7 primarily. And the first one is titled this, There is a call for the redeemed life. There's a call to the redeemed life. Here we go, verse 1. Let's get into the Bible. In fact, let's do something that we don't do enough. Let's stand. And let's give honor and credit to the authority over us, God's word, right? Let's put that honor to our feet. And we're just going to stand for verse 1. Actually, you know what? Let's go right through verse 1 through 7. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, 
bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. You may be seated. Verse 1, therefore, well, you got to stop right there. You're a student of God's word. You're studying to show yourself approved. You want to grow. You want to become like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which is going to yield its, its uh, crops day and night without withering. Listen, you got to be in the word of God day and night. So when you're in it and you read the word, therefore, here we go, you got to stop. And you got to remind yourself, well, what did Paul just write? What is there before? Well, you go back and therefore points you to what was written before. Paul was writing from prison. He says, therefore I, I therefore prisoner of the Lord. He's writing from prison. He's writing to a church of both believing Jews and believing Gentiles who were brought together into one body and they're struggling to love each other and stay unified. Now, does that ever sound familiar? Did you come out of a church that split? Or have you ever been in a church where there's a lot of discord? Listen, I'm going to be the first one to tell you, praise God, that is very, very minimal in our church. It is to God's glory, not to my wizardry, not to any of us pastors or elders. It's to the glory of God. It is nice to be in a church that's not full of schisms and divisions and in discord but paul is writing to this church at ephesus and they're struggling how do you get jews to love gentiles and vice versa they're having a hard time so he spends the first three chapters teaching them what god has done for them and because of what he's done for them he's now going to teach them how do you then live with each other in the church how do you live with each other in the church and so he writes I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, let's get our bearings a little bit. You see that word walk? That is all through Ephesians. That is all through the New Testament. It means your, the way that you live your life every day. Walk is your daily life. You see that word worthy? you got to know this. I want in your mind, just for a second, I want you to picture a set of scales. You know, the kind that's got a, a round platform on this side and a round platform on this side. And there's a fulcrum in between. And you put something heavy on here and it goes up on this side. Listen, that's what the word worthy means. It's the image of a set of scales. And what Paul is saying is this. The way that you and I, Christian, we're called the redeemed. Those who have been bought out of sin because of the cross of Christ, the death of Christ, and have been put into the kingdom of God, were the redeemed. What he's saying is this, the way that the redeemed live ought to bring balance 
to the calling, and I'm quoting, to the calling to which you have been called, to your salvation, to what God has done for you. That's a very weighty thing. It required the death of Christ to save us. That plummeted the scale down. And what Paul is saying, listen, the way that you live, the way that you honor God ought to bring the balance. You ought to live like the redeemed, is what he's saying. You ought to live like the saved of God. Let me put it slightly different. you got to look at me for a moment. This is so important. And this, by the way, is how Paul writes almost all of his letters. Chapters 1 through 3, the first half of Ephesians, details the calling of the Christian. Chapters 4 through 6 detail how the Christian then walks in a way that matches it. And the walk of the redeemed is possible because of chapters 1 through 3, the work of the Redeemer. It's because of what Christ has done for us that we can live in the way that he's explaining. It's the call to the redeemed life. Now I'm setting the foundation. We're about to move to point number 2. We're going to fly through the first part of this. We're going to move to point number 2. Now look at me because this is critical that you get this. You ready? The way that we live, Christian, ought to look like Christ. It's really the essence of what I just said. If you want to walk in a way worthy of the calling, then you live like Christ. Chapter 5, verse 1, you imitate God. And he's going to show us how to do that. In the second point, when we start now looking at the characteristics of the redeemed life, that was the call. What's it look like? What's a redeemed life look like? Now listen, I want you to, I want you to see this in a particular way. I want you to put yourself up against the wall, kind of like they do when you've been arrested, and they take that mugshot. Right? I mean, I don't know why people try to act all tough and angry and bad when they're getting their mug shots. It's really not helping their case or their cause. But listen, you're now put up against the wall like a mug shot. Even, let me even change that a little bit. It's going to be like my son Matthew when he broke his wrist for the second time and they took the x-ray and the doctor came in, the orthopedic surgeon, and he put it up on that backlit display to show me where the break was. So you and I, we're going to be put up on the backlit display of the Word of God. And we're going to actually have to sort of be courageous to see ourselves the way that the, God, that the, the Word of God shows us to look. Let me say that again. We're going to see ourselves the way that the Word of God shows us to look in chapter 4, and he's going to give us several characteristics of what the redeemed life looks like that is worthy of our calling. And when we live like this, we're going to give glory to God. That just means you're going to make God famous. That's what it means to give God glory. You're going to shine the spotlight on him, and he is going to get the credit. Here we go. Look what he says. Humility. You see that in there, chapter 4, verse 2? I want you to be 
urging, I'm urging you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Verse 1, here's how you do it. Here's the characteristics of the redeemed life. Number one, with all humility. It's the foundational virtue of the redeemed. It's why it's listed first. There's a particular word order to this. In fact, you'll see it all the way through this. Now, I've got to admit, humility, I guess this is more confession than admittance. Humility is hard. It's hard for me. It comes and goes in my life. Yet when it's in my life, when I'm walking in humility, life is never more satisfying. And I just hunger for it. I pray, I pray often. I know there's some that say you should never pray for humility. I don't know why. You should pray for humility, but know that God is good. God will not humble you more than he needs to. He's not going to bring calamity to make you humiliated. He's going to bring an internal drive to lie low to the ground. That's what it means to be humble. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me back up a little bit more. You might be tempted to feel like you've got a handle on humility until you see that Paul intentionally puts, verse 2, walk in all humility. Why is that adjective all there? Not humble in a certain area of your life. Not humble when it comes to something that you're not very good at. Because that's we all can be kind of humble there and meek. Humble in all of your life, permeating all areas of your life. And here is the definition of humility. It means literally, and I'm literally translating this from the Greek, lowliness of mind. It's the way you ought to see yourself. It's the way I ought to see myself. Lowliness of mind. By the way, the, the first century Greek and Roman orators and philosophers, they, they really almost did not even have a word for humility. And, if they, and, and they did actually have a word, but they hardly used it because in their understanding, humility was weakness. It was how they viewed Christians in the first century. Pride was what was valued in the first century. Listen, in the Greek and the Roman world, pride was actually treasured. It was actually valued. Yet pride is the greatest enemy of the redeemed life. Every sin that we ever commit, listen, it is an outworking of pride. Every single sin, you've got to trace it down to the root, and you're going to find your love for you is greater than your love for God and your love for the other people. That's why you sin. That's why I sin. But every Christian virtue has its roots in humility. Do you see that? Every sin is rooted in pride. Every virtue of the redeemed life is rooted in humility. It is that important. Here's what humility does. It moves us to place ourselves below others. Pride does the opposite. It wants you to exalt yourselves above others. Humility is an internal, it's an inward drive to let others and help others succeed. Pride doesn't do that. It focuses on our own success. Humility rejoices when another person experiences blessings. Pride jealously burns at it. Humility is never self-loathing or what psychology calls a low self-esteem. That's not humility. 
Listen, a low self-esteem is actually pride masking as humility because it's obsessional self-focused. Listen, if you've got somebody that's got low self-esteem, don't make the mistake to think, well, there goes a really humble person. No, there goes a very prideful person. They need the gospel to bring them to confidence. In fact, Tim Keller put it this way, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is simply thinking of myself less. You're not in the center of the bubble. You're on the outer fringe. People are at the center of the bubble. Your spouse is at the center. Your children are at the center. Your neighbor, your coworker, your classmates. You're concerned about them. You're concerned about their image. You're concerned about their success. What can you do to help them? That's what humility does when it operates in the heart of the redeemed. The redeemed life which leads to unity, begins with humility. You cannot get unity in a church without humble people. And when you have humility, it will always produce the very next virtue that Paul lists. This is why they're a train. This is why they're a chain and they're hooked together. Gentleness. You see verse 2? What is gentleness? Strength under restraint. That's what we call meekness, that is actually the definition for it. You want to know how it was used in the Greek language and the secular writers of the days of the Apostle Paul? Listen, this is awesome. It was a word used of a tamed horse whose power was under the direction of the master, responsive to the tugs from the reins in the master's hand. And you get Galatians 5, if you remember the fruit of the Spirit, and you get self-control hooked in with gentleness. So gentleness and self-control, listen, they always go together. It is power under control. That's what gentleness is. It's a controlled temper. You saw it when Moses was angry with the Israelites, yet God, he, he went to God for help. That's power under control. When the mob came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and remember what our favorite hero Peter did? Peter pulls out a sword and he attacks in order to defend, cuts off the ear of one of them. Yet Jesus stops him saying, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Listen, that's what gentleness is. It's power that stays under control. Now listen, because it trusts in the power and the plan of God. That's how you get gentleness. That's how you get meekness. When you so confidently trust God that you don't need to attack, you don't need to defend, you let God do it for you. People who aren't gentle, they trust in their power to fix the situation. Listen, usually with a sharp tongue or anger. Now, you might be thinking of yourself in this. I'm certainly capable of this. If you don't have humility that's producing gentleness, power under control, then what you do when you are attacked is you defend, and when we defend, we usually counterattack. And the way that we usually counterattack is verbal because we're not usually, most of us, physical fighters. 
But gentleness is what stayed the hand of David twice from killing Saul when he had the opportunity. See, a redeemed life is humble, friends. It is gentle, two powerful virtues that permeate unity in the church. But then it moves on, and look what the next one is, patience. When you think of the word patience, I'm going to give you a word image. I'm going to give you a metaphor, a word picture. Ready? I want you to think of this in your mind. I want you to think of a stick of dynamite with a, an extremely long fuse. Because that really is what the word patience means. It means long-tempered. It's the ability, now listen, I don't know if you've thought of it like this before. Patience is the ability to suffer for a long time without a wrong response. Impatience is when you get hurt and when you get offended and you immediately respond. You're not a patient person. There's not humility, there's pride. And pride exalts yourself, not producing gentleness, power under control, but attack. And attack betrays that you're not a very patient person. Because patience is the ability to suffer long without a response. When you're hurt or you're bothered by another, is there a long fuse in you? that gives you time to respond rightly before you say or do anything? I think we've all heard of Aristotle. He's the Greek philosopher that was pretty famous. He once said that the greatest Greek virtue was the refusal to tolerate any insult and possessing the readiness to strike back. That was how the Greeks in their day viewed patience. They didn't view it very well. The patient Christian is one whose humility has produced a gentleness that accepts life as orchestrated by God's good hand, and it creates the power to suffer a long time without a reaction. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb for a second and tell you that I'm out on the limb with you. Because I think most of us probably don't do very well in any of these three. And I would imagine as I am slapping your, your heart up on the wall where that backlit display of the word of God is shining it all out, that you're probably seeing some pretty dark spots in there that are kind of scary. You know what? I'm not a very humble person, you might be thinking. I want to be, but I'm really not. God, how can I be? And if you're not a very humble person, listen, you cannot be a gentle person. You could be a peace faker. A peace faker is, I don't like conflict, so I won't say anything, and I'll sweep it under the rug, but it builds and it builds and it builds until it destroys a relationship or until you do something you're going to regret. So you might not be very humble, and if you're not very humble, you can't be very gentle. And if you're not very gentle, and you're not because you're not very humble, then you're not going to have a lot of patience in your life. And all of that is because you trust more in your own ability, or I trust more in my own ability to orchestrate my life, and manage my life, and run my life, and rule my life, than I do God's. Listen, the secret to all of this is vertical. You know, I do a lot of counseling. In fact, pastoring was not really my career intention. God brought me in the back door way into a pastorate. My, what I was already doing was counseling. That was my career ambition. 
I've done a lot of it. But here's what I do in counseling. And here's what I try to do even when I self-counsel. And you can do that through the word of God. You do it better when you have people of God to help. But when you are counseling somebody, you are never ever, now listen, you are never at the root of the problem until it turns vertical to God, ever. And when it turns vertical to God, you've just seen a window that puts you right into the very bottom of their heart to why they struggle like they do. And it invites the gospel of hope to be able to help them transform listen if you're not very humble you can't be gentle and if you're not gentle you will not be a patient person and none of them can exist because you trust more in your own ability than you do god's goodness and it moves us to the next one bearing with one another in love friends we are unfortunately going to hurt one another if you ever think that you're going to join a church where you're not going to be hurt, you're going to have to wait for that till heaven. Because on earth, we are still fallible people. It was a few months ago that I violated my own rule. I am usually very, very good at never putting my frustrations into an email. In fact, I've asked our entire board for years, don't ever send out an email to try to resolve conflict or to vent your frustrations. It only works in the negative. It's my own rule. I was taught it. I learned it. I violated it a few weeks ago and tremendously hurt one of the deacons of our church, which I've since had to get together with them and ask for forgiveness. Listen, it's what we do. We hurt one another occasionally. It's a guarantee. It's not a possibility, but a worthy life which balances our great calling. Remember that fulcrum? Remember the scales? It bears with one another when we get hurt. What's that mean to bear? Look at the word bearing. Well, it is a present tense future, so it's constantly here happening. It means to hold up, to last, to endure, not give up or quit. The word bearing means you don't give in. You don't give up. You never give up loving each other, no matter the offense. In fact, 1 Peter 4.8 says this, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Keep loving. Keep bearing. It's how we are from today till we go to glory. Because there's going to be hurt. There's going to be offenses. I love what Paul writes here. If you look at the text with me. Bearing with one another in love, eager. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. You know what that word eager means? It means that we are to have a zeal for unity. 
And what that word uh, bearing with one another, it's actually a word that was used when a horse was stretching out its neck, running at full speed. We are to bear with one another like that. Like there's no other thing that we would rather do. That there's no higher call than you can ever have in your life than to run towards that person, not in anger, not in attack, but in love, ready to cover a multitude of sins. You know, love works like a shock absorber smooths over those rough times when people in the church hurt you. But the multitude of sins that love absorbs is more than just little grievances. Proverbs 10, 12 says, hatred stirs up strife, but, but love covers all offenses. Now here's what my teacher in college would say. All means all, and that's all that all means. So that's everything. Not just love covers the offenses that you're willing to forgive somebody for. No, that's not what it is. Love covers all, every possible offense. Now think of that. Some of us have been hurt deeply, horribly by people that we've loved. Whether it's in the church or it's in a relationship, you've been hurt. Covering over doesn't mean you run back to them to be best friends. Covering over means you withdraw the charges, you drop the charges, which is what the word forgiveness means, so that there's not animosity, there's not resentment, there's not bitterness, there's not a toxicity in your heart that's going to harden your heart. You've got to drop it. Or you will be the one to suffer as it begins to well up in your heart. A worthy life is one that holds up during hard times with each other and endures in love. Now listen, if you ever come into membership at Cornerstone, you're going to be required to sign a covenant and reaffirm it annually at our congregational meeting. Here's what it reads like. It says this, point number one, there's four of them, point number one, you have to say it, you have to sign it, we do it together each year, and here's what it says, by God's grace, I will protect the unity of my church by acting in love toward other members, by refusing to gossip, and by following the leaders. That's what you commit to if you want to be a member of Cornerstone. Because we've got to bear with one another in love. Now, why? Why is Paul talking about this? Where is he going with this? Why do we have to be humble? Why do we have to be gentle? Why do we have to be patient? Why do we have to bear with one another in love? It's all leading to the next one, so that we would be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's the goal. What is the unity of the Spirit? Listen, you got to listen to this. This is a corrective because most people aren't thinking of this right. It doesn't mean here the experiential good feeling we get with one another. The unity of the Spirit is what He did when He called you out of the kingdom of the world and He put you into the kingdom of God and found you a family to belong to called His church. And now you are with other believers and you're with God who is dwelling among you. That was the entire sermon last week. 
The unity of the Spirit is because it's what happens when the Spirit of God plucks you out of the world and puts you into the body of Christ and makes you one with one another. It's not experiential unity. It is fact unity. It is concrete unity. It is the fact that you are now covenanted with one another. Now let me give you the best illustration I know how to give you. It was March 24th, 1990. One o'clock in the afternoon in Lexington, North Carolina. That I stood at the front of the altar while my wife, in dazzling beauty, I mean, if you saw a picture of her, maybe one of these days I got to put it up there, she'd hate me for it, but she, she's so gorgeous. She walks down the aisle. Her, her father would not come to the wedding. Father was an alcoholic. Forfeited all of his fatherhood. Her brother led her down to the altar. And in the course of that ceremony, now listen, if you ever want to get married, you're not married, and you, get, you need to understand this, and I'll remind you of this if I'm the one marrying you. It was when we took our vows to one another that God put us together into one person. He knit us so tightly together. Listen, there's no serrated edge. And if Denise and I were ever to divorce, listen, it would leave a jagged rip because there is no serration. There's no possible way to divorce cleanly and neatly. You might legally be able to do it neatly and cleanly, but it will leave devastation in your heart. It's supposed to. This is the solidarity of marriage, and it's the exact same thing in the church. When the Spirit of God puts you into the, His kingdom, and He places you into His body, you are now seamlessly joined with other believers. And some of us, we don't really want that. But it doesn't matter. It's the unity of the Spirit. And we are to eagerly maintain it. And Paul emphasizes this in verse 4. There is one body and one Spirit. You've been called the one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Listen, it's one Yes, there's probably 30 churches in Easton alone, or more probably. But listen, there's one church, and it's church universal. It's all the believers on the earth. We might just worship in separate locations. We might, we might worship in various different sizes and uniquenesses and diversities. But if Christ is the center, and the word of God is what's being preached, then you're part of the church. And we are to be eager to maintain that unity. That word eager, again, means urgent and enthusiastic zeal. Now listen, when's the last time you've been zealous and enthusiastic to maintain unity with somebody who has hurt you or done something that you don't like? But that is the command. This is what we are to do. This is what we are to be if we're going to be the redeemed that balances our call. And how easily offended we could be with each other and, and when we harbor grievances for years until it begins to divide. Listen, friends, the elders of our church will not allow anybody into membership. 
if there remains any discord with the previous church? We always ask that question. Listen, if you come into our church and you've got disunity and discord with the church that you came out of, you're going to bring it in. It always works like that. You've got to stop and go back and make it right. And then if you still want to be part of our membership, come on in. We eagerly embrace you. But you've got to go back and do it right. When we're asked to lay hands on a sick person and anoint them with oil, here's what we do every single time. We stop before we pray and we ask them, is there any bitterness? Is there any unresolved conflict in you that might be producing this illness? Paul says that sometimes, and James says it too, sin produces physical illnesses. Bitterness spreads like a cancer. Here's how it works. You get hurt. And oftentimes in a context of a relationship, you get hurt repeatedly. At first, you try to deal with it rightly, but it keeps coming. And then you build up resentment. And that resentment starts to harden over until you get bitter. And when you get bitter, your heart hardens. And I've had people tell me more than one time, I don't think I love my husband anymore. I don't think I love my wife anymore. There's no feeling. There's no emotion. And what I tell them, it's because your heart is hardened because he's hurt you so much and you guys haven't dealt with it. But it's not too late. Bitterness spreads like cancer. It affects personal health. It can affect the health of a church. Friends, consider unity with each other to be so urgent so that you can be held together, what he says, in the bond of peace. We've seen the calling of the redeemed. We've seen the characteristics of those who have been redeemed. But how do you do this? Let's talk about the capability for a redeemed life. How can we live like this? Because this is hard. A worthy life on one side of the scale and God's glorious redemptive work on the other. How do you get that? And you can know all of this stuff and still there's churches all over the world marked by factions and conflict and disunity. There's one in Maryland that a deacon put a hat peg on the wall without talking to the other deacons. And so they got mad and it led to a split church and now it's called the two-peg church down in Maryland. Listen, churches have split over the re most ridiculous things. There's a church in Texas that I've told you about before where the elder got a smaller portion of ham than one of the little children at a potluck dinner, and it led to splitting the church. They went to court, and one of the, chur one of the, the church court awarded one of the splits with the building. Listen, this is ridiculous, yet it happens all over. We have people in our church right now who are embroiled in disunity, who are filled with strife, who can't even hardly come to worship. Listen, this is in every church. And what I've learned is this. It is almost always those who are serving the most that get caught into the snare of conflict and disunity. That's interesting. 
It's those who serve the most, almost always, that get caught up into the snare of conflict and disunity. Listen, the devil hates those who are building the church, and he's going to sow the seeds of strife. Whatever God has brought together, if it's marriage or if it's the church, the devil aims to separate it. So we need help. And God has given it to us, and Paul explains it in verse 7. Look at what it says. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now look at that word, but. It continues to focus on the unity of the church, contrasting the one body of verses 3 through 6 with the each one in verse 7. Now, that might have sounded confusing. All I'm going to tell you is this. But is the link between having one body full of unity, yet having each one of diversity. How do you have diversity with unity? But, and what he says, is God's given us grace to have it. But that's not saving grace. He doesn't mean saving grace here. Listen, he means enabling grace, and it's in the form of a spiritual gift. If you've been saved, if you're part of the redeemed, you've been given at least one spiritual gift. That means you've got the divine supernatural enablement that surpasses skills and abilities and talents. You've got a gift from God enabling you to do all that he's going to ask you to do. It's his power running through you. He uses it that way in chapter 3, if you want to flip back in verse 8 of Ephesians. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. What was the grace? It was the ability to preach, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Grace is the power of God flowing through you in your gifts, and it has a job. And look at verse 12 of chapter 4. It jo- the job is this. You've got people in the church that are equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Why? For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Do you know why God is giving you a spiritual gift? Listen, let me tell you where it's heading. It's to help the church be unified. You ever seen it that way before? He knows we struggle with humility. He knows we're not always very gentle. He knows we're not very patient. He knows we're not running in zeal and haste to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We don't really like to cover over people's offenses. We like to unearth them and show them what they've done. He knows we need help, and he says, I'm going to give you the help. I'm going to give you verse 7. I'm going to give you a spiritual gift that's made of my grace. It's my power to work through you to bring unity to the church, because you can't do it on your own he knows how difficult unity is going to be you know he prayed for us he prayed for you and i in john chapter 17 i do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one just as you father are in me and i in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Listen, the world won't believe if your church is fractured. They're going to look and they're going to laugh. Why would anybody that's not a Christian want to come to a church that can't even love each other and be unified? You lose your voice in the community. So you're eager 
to maintain the Spirit's unity. You are zealous and ready to cover over one another's offenses. And you're patient because we're going to hurt each other. And you're gentle when we do get hurt. And you have a long fuse and your power is under control because you're humble. You lie low to the ground. That's how it works. So even Paul prays for us in Romans 15. He says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God. You can't glorify God if you're fractured. He doesn't get the credit. He doesn't, he's not able to be made famous through a split church. Disunity tarnishes the reputation and the glory of God. And listen, God will always defend his glory. And he's given us the divine help. That's one of the ways he defends it. He's been given us the divine help to maintain the unity of the spirit through spiritual gifts. Now, I'm going to end with giving you some practical ways to maintain the unity. I'm going to give you three things. You're not going to see them up on the PowerPoint. Encourage you maybe to take notes. But let me say this as we transition to the last part of this message, and I won't be too much longer. The reason I'm preaching this, this is a ghost sighting. It is the unity of the Spirit. But the reason I'm preaching this, listen, I don't want you to misunderstand. It's not because we're a church poised on discord or fracture or schism or disunity. In fact, I told you the other truth the other the other direction of that is more true god has just given us an unbelievable unity i am so thankful to that but listen it's fragile and i am putting out brush fires and pastor matthew and pastor tim and the elders are putting out brush fires all over the church because people can't love each other very easily and what I'm hoping to do is now preventive. Now listen, look at me. I'm hoping to prevent us from living in a way that doesn't balance the scales. In fact, completely plummets the glory of the call of God to a worthless life of a redeemed. You don't want to live that way. Because that's not what God is doing in you. And that's not what he's doing in me. So how do we maintain the unity of the Spirit? Let me give you three principles to live by. Number one, learn to overlook when someone offends you. Learn. I know it's hard. But if you've got humility, gentleness, producing patience with an eagerness to maintain the Spirit because you're, bare, you're covering over, people's offenses but listen when that's operating and it must that's the gospel's job when it's operating in you you're going to be able to do this and listen friends listen when i've been able to do this it's glorious it's amazing to not be easily offended it is so awesome of a way to live that when people hurt me i can return love to them rather than what my flesh wants to do and then strike and attack, and defend. So the Bible teaches you and I how to do this. Ready? I'm going to give you two verses in Proverbs that hold each other in tension. The first one is this. Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, long fuse, that's patience. 
and it is his glory. Listen, it's your glory, Christian, to overlook an offense. That's what the proverb says. You are shining God's glory. You are worthy of being talked about in the church. You are going to be lifted up in your community when you overlook an offense, when you can easily submerge it in love. But... Proverbs holds that in balance. Listen to this. Proverbs 17, 9. Whoever covers an offense seeks love. You got that, right? But, flip the coin. That's what Proverbs does. But he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Listen, if you take one hit, overlook it for in love, overlook it to your glory, your reputation. You'll be talked about in church. But if somebody keeps hitting you, somebody keeps insulting you, that person keeps a pattern of offenses to you, listen, that person is blind to their sin. And you've got to go talk to them because it's only going to end in one way. It's going to separate you from them in friendship or marriage or relationship. The reason divorce gets almost always to the point of divorce is because couples do not do this. You got peace breakers that are the warmongers, they get angry, they're the volume fighters, they're the ones that yell and scream and cower and intimidate the other person. They outthink them, they outtalk them, they make them lose in the argument that's the peace breaker you got the peace faker i don't like conflict i want to get through it as fast as possible let's just sweep it under the rug what do you need me to say i'm sorry okay i'll never do it again that's peace faking that's not even getting to the root of the problem you've got peace breakers and peace fakers in a marriage almost always one is one the other is the other and it produces a lethal result you've got to go to them and Matthew 18 tells you how to do it. Go personally, loving them. Go ahead, ask the Spirit of God to go ahead of you. Get them ready for this. Speak kindly, but speak to them about the offense. If they do not listen to you, take a witness, one or, or two or three witnesses. That's how everything was established. Go back in love, not to squash them, not to defeat them, not to out-argue them, but to save them, to redeem them, to show them what they probably cannot even see and if they don't listen that person doesn't listen to the two or three and then you go back to the church and you get a pastor you get an elder and listen we got to go and we got to put the person under church discipline we've done that twice in the last 10 years more than that but two times in particular in both times the result was glorious it's beautiful If you're hurt, overlook it. If you're hurt repeatedly by that person, you got to deal with it or it's going to separate your relationship. But let me give you another one. Learn to deal with offenses immediately. Because it gets more difficult with time. And grievances harbored will become toxic. It's going to lead to bitterness. Ephesians 4 says this be angry do not sin do not let the sun go down on your anger give no opportunity to the devil listen if you're hurt and you're a marriage you're in a marriage or you're in a relationship or somebody says something to you at church listen don't wait for the next week 
If you're married, don't wait for the next day. There is a balance to this. If you're still up at 3 o'clock in the morning and you're not able to work through the conflict, take a break. Both agree. Separate that evening. Pray. Get your heart ready. Come back the next day when you can in the glory of God, under the power of the Spirit, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people, and then deal with the conflict. But don't wait. Waiting gives the devil an opportunity, listen, to fortify your flesh's defenses. I'm going to think of 38 reasons why I'm right in this argument and you're wrong. You pound the gavel on them. You pronounce them the guilty one. You will never resolve a conflict. If you're married to a peace faker, you'll win for a while, but you'll lose in the end. Thirdly and finally, and we'll be done. This is the most important one, I think. Learn to fight the right fight. What do I mean? Ephesians 6 says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Listen, when you and I cannot seem to work through a conflict, listen, I'm going to tell you, this is the devil's doing. This is not really between you and I. Yeah, I do things wrong. I hurt you. I can offend you. You can do it to me too. But the gospel has given us everything we need to cover it over. The gospel has given us everything we need to love one another, hold to the bond of peace. When we can't do it, that's the devil. And he wants to break us apart. He wants us to harbor anger. He wants us to be in discord. So the fight, the right fight is this. You ready? Here's how it looks. Why don't you get mad at Satan for a while? Instead of your spouse, instead of your boyfriend or girlfriend, instead of your coworker, your classmate, your church member, your leaders, why don't you get mad at the right enemy and target him? Because he's the one pulling the strings. And the way you target him as you submit to God, James 4, and resist the devil, you go to war against him. And Ephesians 6 tells you how to do it. You get the armor on. And when you get the armor on, you've only got one weapon, and it's the sword of God. It's the word of God. It's the only one that Jesus used when he was tempted for 40 days, and it will always defeat him. He will always flee from it. Resist the devil, James says, and he will flee. Not might, he will, because he cannot stand up to God's word. Preach that word to yourself. And gently bring that word of God to bear with that person. Not to defeat them in argument, but to encourage them in love and grace. Maintain the unity of the Spirit. It's His. It's His commodity. He's entrusted it to us to maintain it. By being humble, gentle, patient, cover over things with love, run like a racehorse to that person to be unified and stay in the bond of peace. And remember, God's given you a supernatural enablement. It's your spiritual gift, and it's meant to store up this church in unity. Amen?